we acknowledge that we have many things that the flesh constantly longs for. And whatever that might be for those in the room today, it doesn't matter. The point is we are imperfect people with a flesh that is constantly bent towards sin, and we are desperate for your transforming grace in our lives through the power of your Holy Spirit. And so, God, as we walk into this text today, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would be the teacher today, that all of us would have our ears and our hearts tuned to your voice, that we would be willing to hear and receive from you whatever you want to say to us today, and that we would also then be willing and bold and courageous to not just walk out of here knowing something, but we would walk out of here doing something. Lead us and guide us today, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, so again, uh, this message has challenged me this week because I stand before you as an imperfect man preaching to imperfect people, right? And so there's room in all of this for all of us in some way, shape, or form. And in verse 1, um, we're going to walk through verse by verse today. Um, Paul uses the word encourage or exhort uh, in all of the chapters, he's using that word exhort, depending on your translation, which means encourage. But it's not just um, encourage. Um, so we actually need to define exhortation a little bit so we kind of understand uh, where we're going today. So the framework of the sermon today it really carries with that thread of exhortation. So up on the screen, you're going to see a definition of exhortation. And that really, literally just means urging someone to do something. But particularly in this context, it has to do with some ethical course of action, meaning there's something that has to do with right and wrong, immoral and moral. There, there, that's, the, that's the thrust of Paul's letter to the Thessalonians in this passage specifically. And so the big idea that we're going to see today, there's no secrets. I'm not trying to keep it from you. We're make it as easy as possible for you to understand what God's Word says. So the big idea for today is this, also up on the screen. We have been called to please God with how we live. Therefore, we must constantly pursue holiness especially in terms of sexual purity. That's the big idea. We've been called to live a life, as Paul says in the other parts of the letter, in a manner worthy of God, that he'll say in chapter 5. So we need to live a life that is perfectly pleasing to God, which involves pursuing holiness, specifically in the area of sexual purity. Now, and I know as we already get right there, there's probably some of you already uncomfortable in the room, right? But this is a topic that plagues our country. It plagues the church. There's no one immune to this topic in some way, shape, or form. And again, this is a divine text. So what it has to say is important for us. And as an imperfect person preaching to imperfect people, I just want to be the first to say that I have not mastered everything that this text demands. Okay? So we are all in progress in this area. And that's what the word sanctification means, which we'll get into in just a moment. And so the theme of this text really does fit with the whole theme of the book as you guys have been preaching and walking through 1 Thessalonians, living in the present as people of the future. And as we live in the present, um, living faithfully means living holy. And I know that word holy might have a bunch of different connotations depending on how you grew up, but we want to see that as we live a holy life now, there's also, Paul says in 1 Timothy, that there's value in our holiness now, but also in the age to come in eternity. And so our holiness isn't just about today, it's actually about forever. And so here's the roadmap, here's where we're going today. In verse 1, we're going to see the main exhortation from Paul. In verse 2, we're going to see the authority of that ex exhortation. In verses 3 through 7, we're going to see the purpose of this exhortation from Paul. And then in verse 8, we see a warning. 
about this exhortation. We're going to talk about the gospel and some application, and that'll be where we're going today. And so let's go with verse 1. Again, if you've got your Bibles, stay with me. We're going to walk verse by verse through this whole thing. Verse 1, we see that Paul says, We ask and encourage you. Those two overlapping verbs communicate a sense of urgency when he ties those together. And again, Paul is saying, you know, we encourage you in this, uh, that what you've received from us, the instruction from how you ought to live. And so Paul is reminding them, hey, look, the encouragement and the urging and kind of this urgency that I'm going to ask you to listen up here comes from a heart of a pastor, the heart of a guy who has planted these churches and is writing these letters to these believers for their good because he loves them and he cares for them. And so he says, as you've received instruction from us how you ought to live or how you should walk. Um, And this is a metaphor that Paul uses all the time in his epistles. He uses the word walk all the time or how you should live in the CSB. And that literally means a manner of your life, the daily conduct in in the way that you live. And so Paul says, as you've received these instructions, you know how you're supposed to live. You've seen it, you've heard it, We've taught it, we've modeled it, and he's reminding them so much of the Christian life, we need to be reminded of what we already know. Can you relate to that this morning? Right? We know things, and we say, well, I know that. Well, then why don't we live it? Well, because we're imperfect people that struggle to get in line with God's plan sometimes, don't we? And so we need constant reminder, and this is what Paul's doing. And he says, live to please God. Live to please God. You know, one of the primary purposes of our lives is to bring glory and honor to God the Father. Amen? As we've sung about today, we lift our praises up not because we are awesome, not because we are the center of the universe, but because He is. And it's all about Him. You and I wouldn't be here. This church wouldn't even have a reason to exist if it wasn't for the Father choosing to send the Son to pay for the sin of humanity and for those to be redeemed by His blood, to be indwelled by the power of the Spirit. We'd have no reason to be here if it wasn't for him. And so it's all about him, bringing him glory and honor. And our faithfulness and our holiness and our purity is one way in which we can live to please God. And so then Paul says, he gives them an encouragement. He says, as you are doing. So he says, hey, you're, you're, the goal is to live to please God as you are doing. So he says, good job. Way to go. You're doing it. But then in classic Paul fashion, he says, but do this even more. And so again, the encouragement is you're doing it, you're doing a great job, but don't stop, don't get complacent, don't get comfortable, keep going. Do this even more, abounding. Paul uses that language in his other epistles too. Abounding means to go beyond the expectation, to exceed where you currently are. And so Paul says, if you're living to please God, exceed that, go even further, continue to grow in your holiness as you walk with the Lord. And so every believer needs this reminder Whatever you're at in your journey with Christ, keep going. Keep going. Exceed where you're at today. Don't get comfortable where you are. I know even for me as a pastor, it's so easy to rely on the truths and the applications and the things that I've learned in my life and to feel like, well, I'm good enough for today. (laughs) I've arrived enough. I'll just kind of coast through the week because, you know, I've I've read this passage before and I've done these things before and it's easy to get comfortable, isn't it? Right? Anybody relate to being comfortable or complacent? Ever struggle with that? Anybody? Awesome. The rest of you are liars. It's fine. No. <laughs> we all struggle in different areas, right? And so the, 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 always Paul is just encouraging, let's keep moving. Let's keep growing. 
You know, one pastor summarized the Christian life this way. He said, the Christian life is really a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience. That's not very flashy. It's not very sexy, is it? (laughs) A long obedience. Well, we don't like long. We want short. And obedience, well, we don't want that. We want comfort. In the same direction, well, that's pretty boring. Can't can't we explore something else? Not really. There's only one way. His name is Jesus, and it's a long journey to be faithful. So let's keep progressing. So that's the main exhortation. You're living to please God? Great. Keep going. Let's exceed that. Let's go. Do it even more. Now, the authority by which Paul says this is in verse 2. He says, For you know what commands we gave you through the Lord Jesus. So again, all authority in heaven and on earth was given to Jesus. We read that in Matthew 28, right? And then from there, he sent out the apostles to make disciples that make disciples. And so Paul, being one of those disciple makers, in planting churches. So he's saying the, the authority that I've been given from Jesus as an apostle in the church, these are the things that we ought to do. And so really, Paul's authority rests on Jesus's authority. And for us today, the whole Bible, every page is actually all about Jesus Christ. Did you know that? Every page, even in Leviticus, even in Revelation, even in all the letters, he's there. It's not always explicitly there, but the whole thing's about him and everything points to him. Therefore, all scriptures being about Jesus, all scriptures being authoritative, everything for us is about the authority and the inerrancy and the sufficiency of scripture, which therefore demands our allegiance this week and today and every day. So that's the authority. The authority is in the written divine revelation of God and his word for us today. Then verses 3 through 7, Paul then really begins to turn up the heat about what he's really writing about. Here we get into the purpose of his exhortation. And the purpose of his exhortation, he begins in the first part of verse 3 saying, For this is God's will, your sanctification. Now that word for sanctification is the exact same Greek word in verse 4 and verse 7 when he uses the word holiness. It literally means to make progress, to be more holy or set apart or distinct. Now again, in the context, it's all about sexual purity. So sanctification, holiness is all about being more set apart, more distinct and more holy in terms of sexual purity. So the emphasis, again, though, is on the process. And again, we know as Christians that everything in our Christian journey, whether it's a sin struggle or learning theology or being a part of a church and being faithfully committed to it, it's all a process, isn't it? It's a process. You know, we know the phrase, an oak grows. Oh, maybe we don't know the phrase. (laughs) I thought for sure that'd be an easy one. An oak grows... Slow. That's all right. It does grow oak leaves. That's good. Thank you for participating. You were brave. An oak, an oak tree, an oak grows slow, right? So now you know the phrase. Now you can impress your friends at lunch today. An oak grows slow, right? Pastor uh, John Newton, who wrote the famous hymn Amazing Grace, said, a Christian is not of hasty growth like a mushroom, but rather like the oak tree because the progress of which is hardly perceptible, but in time becomes a deeply rooted tree. See, our life is not about a quick flash in the pan, let's get mature and let's move on. Our life is a slow, like a tree that develops rings, very, 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 very slow over time. But over 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, if, if, keyword if, If you continue to grow and if you continue to try to pursue maturity and godliness, if you do that, you will find yourself someday being in a more mature place than you are today. The real question is, 
Is that what you do? If is the key word. You could, be in a, you could be in this church for 50 years and not mature. And that's not the church's fault or the pastor's fault. You are responsible for your spiritual maturity. No one else. This church helps. This church is a supplement to your faith. But God, we'll see in 1 Timothy, God says through Paul that train yourself for godliness. Not go to the pastor and let him train you. No, no, you train yourself. You read your Bible. You get into the Word. You fast. You pray. You serve. You go. You make disciples. You die to self daily. You pick up your cross, Jesus says, and follow me. This is a personal journey that takes progress, but you must be intentional. And so church, don't be the people that just sit here for 50 years and stagnate. Don't be those people. The American church does not need more of that. We need on-fire believers who are daily in the Word, daily in prayer, daily growing in their faith, daily disciple-making, daily sharing the gospel, daily serving their communities. We need churches alive, not stagnant. So the command for upright conduct is God's will, Paul says, designed to make us more holy. And Paul is always concerned about maturity. In Colossians 1, 28 and 29, Paul says, labor and strive that he wants to present every believer mature in Christ. That's what he strives for. Not a big church, not a full church, not a fancy church, not a well-branded church. Paul says, I labor and I strive to present everyone mature. To pursue maturity, that's what he wants to see in the church. We see in Romans 8, 29, Paul says that we were predestined to be conformed to the likeness of Jesus. That word likeness means molded or transformed. We were destined to be molded and transformed into the likeness of Jesus. The more you look like Jesus, the more mature you will become. But that takes time. But that is the goal. And so a proper response to a life that has been saved by grace and empowered by grace is to walk in a spirit-empowered way to defeat sexual sin. And so this is the overarching purpose for Paul, sexual purity. Now, the, the Greek words here are very clear. When Paul uses the word sexual immorality in verse 3, and he uses lustful passions in verse 5, these offenses in verse 6, impurity in verse 7. All of these have a sexual connotation to them. For example, uh, let me give a little bit of context for the church in Thessalonica. You might have already covered this, I don't know. But Thessalonica was the capital of a Roman province city in Macedonia. It was a very busy port city. It was a very pagan city. Homosexuality was widely practiced. Prostitution was very common among men and women. Men and women were encouraged to be sexually active before marriage. Those who came to Christ in Thessalonica would have likely been struggling with these sins before they came to Christ. And so as you can imagine, Paul is seeing these new believers come to Christ out of a very sexual context in their world and in their city. And he is reminding them and urging them to not go back to the way that they, in which they came. And reminding them, don't live like the Gentiles, he says. They don't know God. So those who don't know God live like this is essentially what Paul's saying. Sexual immorality, homosexuality, bestiality, incest, sleeping with someone that you don't, you're not married to, all these types of things. Paul says that's how pagans live. Don't live like that. That's not what you've been called to. So that's the scenario to which Paul is writing. And in verse 3, he says, keep away. That's a verb. Keep away from sexual immorality. And that word for sexual immorality is pornea. That's where we get the word pornography. Pornography. And that, again, is the idea of surrendering sexual purity. 
It's the idea of promiscuity, and it's the idea of blatant, illicit sexual intercourse. And then keep away. Paul is calling them to be proactive, not reactive. Be proactive against sexual sin with other people. So again, this would be a call to stay as far away from any type of sexual sin. It doesn't matter what it is, and it doesn't matter what other people are doing. You and I all struggle in some way, shape, or form with this. I don't know what it is. But the command here is clear. Keep away. (laughs) Keep away. You know, sexual immorality of any type is a violation of God's design, how He's designed male and female to be in union with each other in the covenant of marriage, or if you're single, that God's designed for you to live in the covenant with Him in a relationship through Jesus, to walk in purity, to walk in uprightness. We know this from the Old Testament as one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, 14. Paul quotes it again in Romans 13, 9. And not to mention that, if this were not enough to go, well, I'm not, you know, sleeping around, so I guess I'm off the hook. Well, Jesus has something to say to you too. In Matthew 5, 27 and 28, Jesus kind of ups the ante and he says, you have heard it said, do not commit adultery. And we're all like, yeah, we got you, Jesus. But then in 28, Jesus says, but I tell you, any, everyone who looks at a woman or man lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So Jesus takes the Old Testament command, which is primarily about the body, and he elevates the command to include the heart and the mind. (laughs) Right? He elevates it from just a physical thing to, no, no, it matters what you think, and it matters what's going on in your heart. And anyone that is honest with themselves would probably agree that that's a harder battle than the body sometimes, isn't it? What goes on in your thought life can be a dangerous place up there, can't it? So Jesus says that lust, thoughts, hearts, looking, that can be just as much sexual immorality as having an affair with somebody. It's all on the same level of Jesus saying that's sexual immorality. That's outside of my design for how you've been called to live. So with that in mind, Paul continues his next exhortation in verse 4. So he's already said, keep away. Now he says, control his own body in holiness and honor. The word control here is the word for gaining mastery over something. To gain mastery and control. To gain mastery over your body in holiness and in honor. So living with your body in a way that is holy, set apart, and distinct in terms of purity. I don't have time to get in all the examples today. Plus, I know there's some younger people in here. But there are megachurch pastors that recently have said certain types of sexual immorality that I'm not going to talk about. They've actually come out and said, that's actually a gift from God. It's a gift from God. As long as you and your spouse agree, it's all good. If you want to talk about that after the service and ask me who said that, I'll tell you. But it's incredible the way the church is going in in certain places on this. Um, Absolutely incredible. Completely unbiblical. Verse 5, uh, in contrast, again, he says, don't keep away, control your body, don't live like the, the Gentiles do, not with lustful passions like the Gentiles who don't even know God. You know, lustful passions, again, we, we are called to live self-controlled lives, right? It's one of the fruit of the Spirit, right? Self-control. So any uncontrolled, just lustful passions, just flailing around, going after everything that you ever want is, again, outside of God's design. Verse 6, 
Uh, he gets even more personal here, as if it wasn't hard enough to hear him say, don't do this, keep away from this, control yourself. Then he, he again layers on why this is such an important topic. In verse 6a, he says, do not sin against or take advantage of a brother or sister in this manner because the Lord is an avenger of all these things. So Paul uses the phrase brother and sister twice in this passage. Again, he's writing to the church in Thessalonica. He's writing to believers. And so clearly, there's some kind of reality where Paul was trying to warn them, hey, look, don't sin against your brothers and sisters, whether that's having sexual fantasies about them, whether that's physical acts with them, all sorts of different things. Paul says, do not do that. Do not take advantage of them. Do not sin against them in this way. We've all been a part of the body of Christ. And then verse 6, again, strong language. The Lord is an avenger of all of these offenses. That's a terrifying thing. The Lord is an avenger of all these offenses. So again, there, is, there will be, for those of us who struggle, we all do in different ways, but there is grace for the sins that we've committed, but there are also consequences, right? You can be forgiven of your sin today through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you are walking in Christ, you are forgiven, but that doesn't necessarily free us from the reality of the consequences of sin. Does that make sense? From a salvific perspective, Jesus has bought you and, and redeemed you and justified you, and you are secure in him. But if you sin against your brother today, there's going to be consequences to that, relationally, emotionally, spiritually, maybe even literally. So there's consequences. So understand the weight that this is a serious topic for every single one of us in this room, because you could sin against a brother or sister in this room in your head. That's how serious this is. And God will not be mocked. God is not fooled. You can fool everyone else in this room, but you will not fool God. He sees all. He knows all. And he has called you to walk in holiness and purity. And in verse 7, we see kind of the summary statement. For God has not called us to impurity, but to live in holiness. Now, I don't know if you noticed, but the word impurity is kind of an Old Testament word, right? And the whole purpose of so much of the Old Testament is purity, Right? You have all the purification laws, you have all the sacrificial systems. It was all designed to help the people figure out how could we be pure in God's sight. Well, clearly they couldn't do that because that's why they had all the sacrifices daily, right? You read about that in Leviticus, you have the Day of Atonement. You have all these things put in place to purify the people from their sin because they kept sinning. There was no way to be pure. And so now we know as New Covenant, New Testament believers, we can be pure in Christ because His blood covers us. Amen? So we are forgiven of all of our sin, past, present, and future, if we are in Christ. But it doesn't mean we still don't struggle with sin. So I like to say it this way. We are saints now, but saints that still sin. But we are not just sinners. You know, that's not our identity anymore. Our identity is not sinner. You're, if you're a Christian, your identity is a saint. But as a saint, we still sin, don't we? And praise God that that is not jeopardizing our eternal security. And so the warning then, or the call here again is, you've not been called to impurity, you've been called to holiness. So let's walk in that direction. So let's keep away from impurity. Let's control ourselves so we don't drift into impurity. And let's pursue, a constant pursuit of holiness in this area. We've called to be clean. We've been called to be holy. We've been called to be pure. And then in verse 8, he says, Consequently, anyone who rejects this, this meaning all of these instructions, anyone who rejects this, is actually rejecting not man, but God, who gives you his Holy Spirit. So to reject these instructions on sexual purity 
is to reject God himself, the God, the creator who spoke everything into existence, who made you and fashioned you, who called you, who sent his only son to die for you, and as this verse says, and then if you are in Christ, sent you the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you and dwells you 24-7, that would be the God you're rejecting if you don't obey and follow this, the instructions, Paul says. So, uh, one commentator sums it up like this. Sexual immorality injures others. It deserves the Lord's vengeance. It contravenes the holy calling and the entire instruction of God and associates the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit with impurity and transgression. So sin is serious. So church, while this is heavy today, let's take sin seriously. You know, the old Puritan preacher John Owen once said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Be killing your sin or sin will be killing you. You see, there's, there's no way around that. And if you are not a Christian here this morning, I want to give you some encouragement. Your greatest need is not from a, a release from this, the, 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 the chains of, of sexual addiction, although that might be it for you. Your greatest need is a spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. And that might be your sin might be a barrier. And maybe you're sitting here today thinking, or maybe you're watching online thinking, hey, my sin is so nasty, so disgusting, so heinous, so outside of everything I'm supposed to do, there's no way God could love me. There's no way God would ever accept me. I'll never be worthy enough. And I'm just here to tell you, all of that is a lie from the pit of hell. In Christ, all things will be made new. In Christ, you will be forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future. In Christ, you can be made new and have a new hope and be forgiven of all sin. But you have to come to Christ. And so if you are not walking with Jesus today, again, there is no sin that Jesus' blood cannot atone for. There is no sin that Jesus' blood cannot atone for. You can be forgiven if you come to him in repentance and faith, acknowledging that you've sinned against a holy God and you've rebelled against his design, whatever that is. Believe that Jesus is the Son of God and believe that he died on that cross willingly for your sins and believe that God the Father raised him from the grave three days later, making him the most powerful person in the universe with all authority and all power to forgive anyone and everything if they come to him in faith, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And confess that you will live to strive to live in accordance with his design the rest of your life. If you are in that place today, I'd say, please come and talk to me, talk to Pastor Matt, talk to one of the elders here. The most important relationship in the world is your relationship with Jesus Christ. Please make sure that you hear his voice today and you follow him. And for the Christians in the room, uh, you need to be reminded of some gospel truth as well. Um, because of the gospel, we have been called to live transformed lives of obedience, purity, and holiness. And because of the gospel, we can. We can. Titus 3, 4 through 8 says, But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared, He saved us, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to His mercy through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit, he poured out his Spirit on us abundantly through Jesus Christ our Savior so that, having been justified by his grace, we have become heirs with the hope of eternal life. 
This saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed God might be careful to devote themselves to good works. These are good and profitable for everyone. So church, because of the gospel, you've been redeemed, you've been renewed, you've been washed. I hope that brings you comfort today. You've been regenerated and renewed by the Spirit so that your life not only has eternal hope, but present hope and present hope to overcome sin and to live the life that God's called you to live. See, we haven't been just saved by grace and then we just float around. We've been saved by grace and we will be transformed by grace. The same grace that saved you is the same grace that's going to transform you from the inside out by the power of the Spirit as you live in alignment with God's truth. So by His transforming grace, we can. We can live a life that's holy and pleasing to Him. And again, I know this, this topic is sensitive. It might be awkward. It might be heavy because I don't know your story. But if you are currently struggling with sexual immorality, homosexuality, adultery, pornography addiction, or any kind of sexual sin in any color, whatever it might be, let me assure you that you are not beyond God's reach. You have not sinned so much that God has said, I'm done, I'm out. That person's on their own. However, you must repent today and come to the cross and confess that sin. 1 John 1, 9 says that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. If you confess your sins, He is faithful and just to forgive you. Repent today and then take radical measures to keep away and to control yourself. Seek help, seek accountability, and be 100% honest with yourself and with others about what you struggle with. And talk to somebody today. Talk to Pastor Matt. Talk to Josh. Talk to one of the elders. For me, I was introduced to pornography at age 10 by a person in my family. And that haunted me for 14 years. I was addicted to pornography for 14 years. Brought that into my marriage. It about ruined my marriage. It about ruined my ministry. And that's brought a lot of guilt and a lot of shame for a long, long time. But by the grace of God, through the power of the Spirit, through good people like my wife who has loved me unconditionally, through counseling, through accountability with men, I have more victory now than I've ever had in my entire life. And I don't say that, thank you, I don't say that to get your applause. I don't say that because I want you to think, wow, look how great this guy is. I really don't. I say that because I was a person who hid that sin for 14 years. I was a person who was fake to my own wife for 14 years. I was a person who pretended that I had it all together for 14 years. I was a person who refused to really actually get honest with myself that I had a serious problem for 14 years as a pastor in ministry. And I just want to encourage you, you are not alone. You are not the first person to go through this. You are not the only person, nor will you be the last. God will and can transform you. I've been going to counseling for six months to work through some of this stuff, and it's been the best thing I've ever done. Get help. Confess sin. There are people in this room that I know will love you towards Jesus in this. It's not the end of your journey, and it does not have to define you, and you do not have to live in guilt and shame, shackled under all that like you're the worst person in the world anymore. This is not true if you're in Christ. And one of the biggest things I've always struggled with up until very recently is this idea that I have never been good enough. 
And by God's grace, he is healing and removing that garbage and helping me see with clarity the identity in Christ that he has given to me. But church, that happens when we get real, when we get honest. Stop doing what you're doing. And it's not just stop it. This is not about behavior modification. This is about a heart, gospel-centered transformation. If you really want to be like Jesus Christ, there are people in this room that will walk with you and help you, and they're counseling. There's so many resources. But church, you have got to get real, and you've got to open up, and you've got to ask for help. And it's been the best thing that I've ever done in my Christian life. And so if you want to talk more about that afterwards, there's no guilt and shame that has to hang over you anymore. In Christ, you can be made new, but it's work and it's hard. And now I have to live a life that says, keep away and control yourself. And so now I'm the weird guy that is doing things that look really weird to people. I don't have social media apps on my phone. I can't access the internet on my phone. My wife has the password to all that stuff on my phone. So there's ways we have to live practically. If we really want to keep away, you know, most people like me for so long thought, well, if here's the line, how can I get as close to the line as possible without crossing it, right? I'll just dabble a little bit on Facebook and drift a little bit over here and, you know, maybe look at a couple images or whatever it might be, but I'm not going to cross the line. Most people live this way. I lived this way for a long time. It's a horrible way to live. It's terrible, really bad strategy. The better way to be is how can I get as far away from the line as possible, How can I get as far away from this as I possibly can? To keep away, like Paul says, to control myself. Part of controlling myself is to keep away. And again, I have not mastered this. I am not perfect. I fail regularly. But that's the call. Because of the gospel, we can live transformed lives. Because of the gospel, secondly, we have been given the Holy Spirit. As Paul says at the end of verse 8, and he empowers us and enables us to live this pure and holy life. Church, you can't do this on your own. You can't just white-knuckle it and try harder. It is a work of the Spirit, and you have to surrender to that work, and a lot of the times that is in community with other people. So embrace that. He is our helper. He is our teacher. He is the one who transforms and is doing all the heavy lifting, but cooperate and surrender to him. Finally, I want to leave you with some encouragements and some application. Number one, um, to overcome sexual impurity, focus on your God more than your sin. You know, uh, think about it this way. What you consume will eventually consume you. If you're consuming God's Word daily, constantly, that's going to begin to consume your mind. If you're consuming porn, if you're sleeping with your girlfriend, if you're doing all these other things, and that's the, what consumes your time and your life, is it any shock that it consumes your life? It wrecks your relationships, it wrecks your self-esteem, it wrecks your brain, it wrecks your walk with Christ? What you consume will consume you. So let's consume things that are God-honoring. What do you want to be consumed with? And then are you going to move in that direction? Focus on cultivating a deep and abiding relationship with Christ abiding in Him, so that your desires for Him far outweigh your desires for anything that this world has to offer. Whether it's sexual sin or any other kind of sin, may your satisfaction be so rooted in who God is and what He's done and what you want to know about Him, to be like Him, that that far outweighs everything else. Number two, as sinners who have been made saints, we must strive to train ourselves for godliness. Let me read 1 Timothy 4 real quick. 1 Timothy 4, 7 through 10 
says, but have nothing to do with pointless or silly myths. Rather, train yourself in godliness. For the training of the body has limited benefit, but godliness is beneficial in every way since it holds promise for this present life and also for the life to come. This word train is the word where we get the word gymnasium. Literally train. And the idea is to put forth an effort where proficiency is gained through practice. Church, if you want to be a godly person, that's going to take time. It's going to take practice. It's going to take accountability. And it's going to be work. How many of you heard the phrase, no pain, no gain? You heard that? Is it any different in our spiritual life? If I want spiritual gains, I have to put in work, right? Now, again, work is not related to earning anything. We are not earning salvation. We are not earning God's favor. That's not how it works. But if we put in the time, I spend an hour a day in God's word, that's going to produce something in me. If I spend one hour a month in God's word, that'll have some kind of outcome, right? What kind of person do you want to be? Are you going to train yourself for godliness? And number three, in the fight for sexual purity, we must be proactive. Again, Paul says, keep away. Control your own body. He's given you the spirit. So I don't know what it looks like for you today, but whatever you need to do, identify your sin and then think about how can I keep away from that thing? What am I going to do to move from I'm the guy who's about to cross the line but never does, and how do I become the guy or the gal who moves over here that says I'm not going to get anywhere near that anymore? I'm going to move out of my boyfriend's place. I'm going to stop viewing this and get accountability. I'm going to confess this to my spouse. Whatever it is, how do you move from I'm about to cross the line to I, I don't want to be anywhere near that line, and I want to walk with other people who are on that same journey with me. So my fellow brothers and sisters, I know I'm over time. I apologize for that. But we have been redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, and he did not die for us to just sit in our brokenness. You were saved from the wrath of God for good news, for good works, for good things that he has planned for you, but it comes at a cost. And the cost is discipleship. The cost is picking up your cross daily and following Christ, denying yourself. Deny yourself. Whatever it is that your flesh wants, you have to say no. And do that in community with others. Keep away. Control yourself. Get accountability. Get help. Walk in the Spirit. Fill your life with God's Word. Be people that are not content to look like the world. And be people that are not content to hide anymore. Be people that are willing to have a constant pursuit of holiness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these saints here today and for a word that is hard and heavy for most of us. But God, I thank you that by your grace you have sent Jesus to die for all of those who would repent and believe. God, I thank you that you've forgiven us, that you've adopted us into your family, you've made us new. And God, for those who are struggling with these sins, whatever they might be, I pray that they would have the courage by your Spirit's power to say I need help and to say I want to change and that they would move in the direction today of transformation and holiness and purity. Not because they hope that you'll love them more, but because you've commanded them to move. And God, I thank you that you will always love your people unconditionally regardless of our performance. Thank you that your love is not conditional upon our performance. Thank you for loving us unconditionally. May that be the hope and the motivation to which we seek to live transformed lives.
We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.